Well, in the early church, a man named Timothy took over the pastorate of the church in Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, provided all sorts of instructions on how the church should be run and what they should do. And he lists many different things like preach the word, pray for your people, those types of things. But in 1 Timothy 4.13, he exhorted them, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, which is what we're about to do. The reading of the Word, which is different from the preaching of the Word, is not to be confused. But if we're honest, when the preacher sometimes says, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, sometimes we're, we feel like we're going to just kind of take a mental pause before we get to the meat of the matter, which is the sermon itself, right? Uh, oftentimes we, maybe after a Sunday, maybe, just maybe, you'll say, wow, that was a good sermon. Uh, but no one typically ever says, wow, that was an excellent scripture reading. And yet the reading of scripture is the most inerrant part of our service. So we would do well to pay attention when there is a reading of God's word, whether that is our call to worship, whether that is our scriptural prayer of assurance or our benediction or whatever it might be. And I say all this because we're about to go through a section in Exodus that is a familiar passage. And in the next couple of weeks, they are going to be relatively long passages of reading. And you may be tempted to just tune out and then kind of tune back in afterwards. But I encourage you to follow along attentively as we read this morning from God's Word. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. It comes from Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. Hear God's Word. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. 
The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps. And the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. In 1970, Betty Penrose filed a lawsuit in the United States Courts of America, you know, the courts in America. And uh, she filed a lawsuit against God. Betty Penrose sought $100,000 in damages, blaming God for his negligence, allowing a lightning bolt to strike her house. And when God failed to turn up in court, Penrose won the case by default. In 2008, Senator Ernie Chambers also filed a suit against God, seeking a permanent injunction against God's harmful activities. The suit was dismissed because God could not be properly notified, not having a fixed address. Now, we might hear about such stories and such lawsuits and find them frivolous or just cheap publicity stunts. But the reality is that there are a great number of people Christians and non-Christians who would like to put God on trial. C.S. Lewis had a collection of essays titled God in the Dock. The phrase in the dock is a British expression, meaning that someone is being subjected to examination or to trial. And there's this tendency that many people have to put God in the dock. We want him to stand trial and answer for the ways that he runs this world. We want him to be in the dock to defend himself, defend his character. There is this attitude, this approach of distrust, maybe even disdain over God. And that is what we see here this morning as we return to our exposition through Exodus. We see Pharaoh getting to know the one true God, getting to know The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, and he doesn't like what he sees and hears. Pharaoh's heart is hard. And as each plague strikes with greater intensity, so does his heart harden with greater and greater determination. And at the root of his hard-heartedness is unbelief in the God who has revealed himself. 
it's not that Pharaoh doesn't believe in the existence of God. It's not like Pharaoh had all these questions that needed to be answered to be reasoned into the faith, but rather Pharaoh puts God in the dock. He encounters God and doesn't like what he sees. He finds God, he weighs him out and finds him wanting. Sometimes people say, the God I worship wouldn't do this or wouldn't do that, but it's kind of another way of saying, the God I encounter in the Bible is not the kind of God that I want to worship. It's not to my liking. In our passage this morning, we see two reasons Pharaoh did not like the God of the Bible, and perhaps two reasons you, you may not like the God of the Bible. God judges, and God is powerful. God judges, and God is powerful. That's what we're going to see this morning. Now, it's been some time since we've been in Exodus, so let's remind ourselves of where we are in the book. Chapter 7 is a turning point in Exodus because it marks the beginning of the ten plagues. The great confrontation between God and Egypt and God's purpose of sending plague after plague upon Egypt is to reinforce again and again that he is God. Listen to him. There is no other. Throughout... Through these plagues, God is going to make his great name known. And last time we saw that the first plague that came upon Egypt in the latter half of chapter 7 was that of turning the Nile and all the surface water in Egypt into blood. But Pharaoh would not listen. He simply walks away and he just goes back into his home. His heart is hard. And so God brings two more plagues in our passages this morning. In our passage this morning. Which brings us to our first point. God judges. If you're taking notes, you can just jot that down real quick. God judges. It's not surprising that the plagues are a form of God's judgment. These plagues are not meant to be pleasant. They are meant to be devastating and they will grow increasingly deadly. And God doesn't use great things. He almost uses small things. Uh, you know, a gnat or a frog and multiplies them and overwhelms Pharaoh by its quantity. More and more, these judgments grow in severity. They begin kind of like as a nuisance and then it becomes offensive and then it causes destruction. And finally, it, it culminates in death. First, we have that plague of frogs. Verse 3 is a graphic description of the frogs getting into absolutely everything. Now, this, it's going into every nook and cranny. This isn't a picture of, you know, cute little animals popping out of sock drawers and out of your cushy slippers. This isn't Kermit and Kuropi paying a visit to the children's nursery. This is chaos, that comes with a land teeming with frogs. I mean, imagine millions upon millions of frogs covering the land, this amphibious invasion that we might think at first is kind of fun. Maybe the children kind of like it, but pretty soon they're everywhere. I mean, you go and eat dinner and you eat your bread and you might just get a little bit of toasted frog. You go to bed and you lift up the covers and it's littered with slimy, unsanitary, unpleasant frogs. You wake up in the middle of the night and you can't help squishing on them. 
between your toes as you're walking to the bathroom. And then you get to the bathroom and the toilet's full of them. You try to go back to sleep, but the croaking noise is just unbearable. You wake up and you put on your coat and you find your pockets lined with them. They're on your laptop. They're in your shower. They, there's frog roadkill everywhere. And a particular significance is that this plague affects Pharaoh. Whereas in the first plague, it produced little personal hardship. He could have easily just said, hey, you, go get some water for me. Dig a well for me and get me some water. He could just return to his household. Here, the frogs are hopping into the royal chambers. Pharaoh is vulnerable. God does not allow this hard-hearted king to simply go back and retreat into the privacy of his own palace this time. Next, we see in verse 16, the coming of the gnats. Without warning, perhaps because Pharaoh had reneged on his promise, it says Aaron struck the dust of the earth so that it became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The scale of this plague is vast. It affects every man and beast. And in verse 17, it seems to imply that all the dust, maybe the surface dust, became gnats, but I don't think it necessarily means that every single speck of dust became a bug. Rather, this is a way of indicating that the whole land is being covered with them. It's everywhere. Again, it's saying the sheer number of them is overwhelming. Now, the word for gnats in Hebrew is not actually a a technical term. It just means some type of flying, biting insect. So it could be translated in any number of ways. It could be thinking lice. You could be thinking gnats. You could be thinking wasps. You could be thinking mosquitoes. For me, what is probably the most annoying are mosquitoes. And so I'd like to imagine them as being mosquitoes. They're everywhere, swarming and buzzing. The only way to escape them is probably just to dive into the Nile. And once you come up for air, they're all over you. Years ago, I was on a trip with Shirley in in the Pacific Northwest. And we stopped by a a lake and we were just kind of walking along the edge uh, of this lake uh, with some, there were some bushes there. And I remember these bushes were filled with spider webs. And I thought to myself, oh, how strange that there are so many spider webs in this place. So we go walking along and then the heat of the day starts to fade. And all of a sudden, it was like all the mosquitoes in the world had just woken up. We quickly realized why no one was walking on that side of the lake because it was hometown mosquito right there. And all these spider webs were there because their spiders were waiting to catch all these mosquitoes and we were getting bitten all over the place. We booked it to the car and, sh- and we were getting attacked and stung at every opportunity. That was for a few minutes by a lake. This is for we don't know how long over the whole land of Egypt. Certainly these plagues are the means by which God would redeem his people, and they certainly reveal God's character, but there are hints that this plague is also retribution, a reckoning from God. Notice that when the frogs finally go away in verse 13, that they left a calling card, their stench. 
They died out in the houses, courtyards, and fields, and they began to gather in heaps. They gathered them in heaps, and the land stank. Now, back in chapter 5, verse 21, Pharaoh considered Israel what? A stench in his nostrils. Same word is used here. It's as if God is saying, you consider my people a stench? I'm going to give you a stench. Again, back in Exodus 1-7, Pharaoh saw the people of Israel increasing greatly. That is the word used, that was translated there. And wanted to destroy them because the land was filled with them. Well, the same word for increasing greatly is used here in chapter 8, verse 3, when it says the Nile will swarm with these frogs. It's as if God is saying to Pharaoh, you thought the land was teeming with people, with Israelites? Well, now you're going to have the land teeming with frogs. Stench for stench, teeming for teeming. There are also hints that these two plagues, the first two plagues, the Nile and the frogs, are specifically designed in response to Israel's oppression. In chapter 1, Pharaoh saw the Israelites multiplying, and what did he do? He attacked their fertility, didn't he? He said, throw these babies into the Nile. You see a Hebrew boy, throw him into the Nile. And what does God do in the first two plagues? He says, you want to drown my people in the Nile? I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. You want to attack fertility? Well, I'm going to attack it right now. I'm going to attack your fertility goddess. Because we're going to talk about this later. But the Egyptians had a frog goddess. They did. Who was thought to be the goddess of fertility. You see, God judges. God judges. And this is a stumbling block for some. Many people are drawn to the idea of a loving, compassionate God, but find themselves disoriented at a God who draws lines and brings retribution. But there is no mistaking that the God of the Bible is a God who judges the wicked, sometimes through natural circumstances, sometimes by allowing the devil to reign, sometimes using our own stupidity and sometimes directly by the finger of God. Nobody wants to be judged. In fact, most of us are terrified of being judged. And some of us are reluctant to judge others. We want to be known for showing compassion and understanding. We want to be known as people who are full of grace and love for everyone. And yet all of us judge. (laughs) And all of us are interested in justice. It's part of what it means to be human. No matter what political spectrum you are on, no matter what your social leanings might be, you care about justice. You might think, oh, Pharaoh, he's one of those. He deserves the judgment. He's bad, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, you are ready to judge. I'm ready to judge. If the referee misses a call, you're ready to pounce on them for the wrong call. If someone cuts you off while you're driving, you're muttering judgments under your breath, aren't you? And if your food doesn't come out just right, you're ready on the phone, ready to give an honest review on Yelp, right? You judge people for wearing a mask, not wearing a mask. We have an elevated sense of justice. 
but it is nothing like the judgment of the perfectly all-knowing, all-present, all-righteous God. And in his divine wisdom, God brings judgment. Even now he does so. Even now he's bringing judgment onto this world. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. His sovereign hand brought the pandemic. His sovereign hand allows civic unrest and economic troubles. This isn't to say that we know that a particular crisis is related to a particular sin of, a, of an individual. We do not have the mind of God to be able to link those two things. But wars, famines, diseases, and frogs come from the hand and judgment of God. Just as the frogs and the gnats were a precursor of a greater judgment to come, so is everything we experience today. They are wake-up calls, wake-up calls to a lost world saying, come now before the true wrath of God and his judgment comes. Turn to him. The judgments of God upon this world are mere hints and shadows, a foretaste of, a, a foretaste of greater and final judgment where God who sees the hearts and intentions of every man will redress every wrong. But Pharaoh hated it. God's speaking, but Pharaoh hated it. God's acting, but he hated it. He despised this judging God who does things for his own glory. He will not respond to God. He simply, it says in verse 15, hardens his heart and will not listen. But there's another reason Pharaoh did not like the God of the Bible. And it may be one of the reasons you don't either. Not only because God judges, but secondly, because God is powerful. That is our second point. God is powerful. And significantly, God is more powerful, than, more powerful than Moses, more powerful than me, more powerful than you. As I mentioned earlier, frogs were a symbol of divine power, a representation of fertility. It is because one of the major goddesses of Egypt was called Heket. And she's depicted as a human a female with a frog's head, a frog god. She was the spouse of the creator god, Kunam, who was thought to fashion the human bodies, and then her job was to breathe life into them. Commentator John Currid mentions that Heket's job as a goddess was twofold, to control the, actually the multiplication of frogs, and two, to assist women in childbirth. Now with Egypt overrun, overhopped with frogs, Heket is humiliated. This plague proves she's powerless to resist the mighty strength of the Lord. Yahweh is the one that bestows fertility. Yahweh is sovereign over Egypt and over the Egyptian gods. He's bigger than Pharaoh. He's bigger than all their gods. He is the Lord who is like him. And notice what happens when Pharaoh, he, for Pharaoh, he begs for relief, doesn't he? Uh, his magicians come in and they're able to produce some frogs there that we see in verse 7. But it's almost comical. I mean, can you imagine millions upon millions of frogs and these, these magicians come in and say, poof, two more. You know, it's, who cares? 
They're only able to make things worse. Pharaoh places no stock in the magician's feats this time. He asked Moses, plead with the Lord. Plead with Yahweh. And, you know, er, er, earlier, and earlier uh, Pharaoh said, who's the Lord? Who is this God? I don't know Yahweh. Well, he's starting to know now, doesn't he? He's calling him. Plead with Yahweh. But he's starting to know now. And he says, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And listen to Moses' response. He lets Pharaoh set the terms, doesn't he? He says, okay, you want to get rid of the frogs? When do you want to do it? Tell me when. Because if you can say when the frogs will go away, you can personally know that the timing is not due to some coincidence or some natural phenomena. It is from the sovereign power of God. And what happens, Pharaoh says, tomorrow or by tomorrow. And it happens, right? It just happens. They just die. All of a sudden, these, the croaking stops. They, the frogs croak. But what does Pharaoh do? Does he bow the knee before the grand demonstration of God's judgment and power? No, in verse 15, when he saw that there was a respite, he hardened himself. He hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Here was a man who had been sent warning after warning from God. Turn to me. Look to me. Listen to me. I am God. And what does Pharaoh do? He himself doesn't pray to God. You notice that? He does not humble himself and ask for God for, for God for forgiveness. He offers up, he asks somebody else to give a lifeboat prayer. And it's not wrong when we're in lifeboat situations to pray to God. But here is a man trying to squirm out of his consequences. Rather than asking God to take away his sins, what does he say? Ask the Lord to take away the frogs. The man literally doesn't have a prayer. He simply wants God to make things comfortable again. He he wants to squirm out from under God's divine judgment. He's not saying, Lord, you're great. I humble myself. You're sovereign. I submit my life to you. Whatever you're saying to me, I'm ready to listen. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, God, go away. Just take these away. I want my life back to normal. It's a contemptuous attitude. As a side note, I wonder how you are responding to God. When God speaks to you in his word, do you dismiss it? Church, when God speaks to you in his discipline, because he will discipline his children because he is a good heavenly father, do we simply want to cry out to God to take away the pain, or do you cry out to God in repentance of sin? Do you hate the consequences of sin or hate the sin itself? There is a world of difference. And if you're not a Christian, perhaps you're here this morning because a friend brought you or maybe perhaps you're here this morning because you have a little bit more time on your hands and you're, like, you're saying, oh, now's the time for me to figure some stuff out about God. God is speaking this morning. God is speaking to you through his word. And the question is, How will you respond? Well, Yahweh has shown that he's bigger than the gods of Egypt. He unleashes and stops on a dime the forces of creation. But look one more time at at our passage with these gnats here. Look at the confession of the magicians. When these gnats or these mosquitoes come, the magicians try to replicate it. 
to produce those gnats, but they could not, it says in verse 18. You see, the magicians are simply out of their depth. The God of Israel is the God of all nature. They can't reproduce the plague because the power of their so-called gods is limited. He who sits in heaven, in the heavens, laughs at these magicians. These magicians are outclassed and outmatched, and they have to tap out. They might be potent, but like so many other satanic powers, they are not omnipotent. These magicians will appear again in the story, but they never are able to reproduce anything ever again. For all intents and purposes, they don't even try. They just leave the battlefield. And they're forced to confess, this is the finger of God. Meaning, this is too big for us. They acknowledge that it is divine power that is happening here. Overwhelming divine power. Now, some people wonder, why is it that they could reproduce the two previous plagues, but now all of a sudden they couldn't. How did they do it before? And honestly, the text is completely unconcerned, supremely unconcerned and uninterested in such questions. Because the real question is, who is the one who brought judgment upon Egypt? The Lord, Yahweh. And who can compare to him? No one. No one. So will you respond to him? Will you draw near in the face of this omnipotent judge? Pharaoh is angry and hardened toward this God. He didn't like that God judged the wicked. He didn't like that he was bigger and more important than he was. He didn't like that God is God and he is not. He didn't like that God defines reality and orders all things. Pharaoh wanted God in the dock. He wanted to stand over God. And God stood over him. Pharaoh wanted to play judge. He wanted to be his own God. He wanted to be the one in control. And perhaps that is where some of you are this morning. You come to the scriptures and you scrutinize it, you come to it, maybe perhaps skeptically, but you do not submit to what the word of God says. Friend, I must tell you that you are in the dock. The God of the universe who is infinite and incomprehensible, as we have sung, omnipresent, omniscient, who will by no means clear the guilty, will judge you in his perfect holiness, and you will be found wanting. You will be found wanting. Because God is God and you are not. You're meant to be in awe of the judge of the universe who makes heaven and earth do his bidding. You're meant to be overwhelmed by what these plagues say about who he is. But let me assure you about this. Christianity is not some gloomy, you know, fear of some round-the-clock divine supervision of everything you do. That you are being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. Christianity is not North Korea. 
No, we are given a glimpse into the perfect judgment and power of God, not that we might flinch from his presence, not that we might flee from him, but that we, may be, that we might fall facing him. Fall down facing him. Because in the greatest demonstration of his power, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, very God of very God to earth, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant who had no form of majesty, that we should look at him, who died by the judgment of this world to be powerless. This Jesus took upon himself the judgment of God you deserved, not only so that he might return you under his sovereign rule, but so that you might be called sons and daughters of God. That you might call him not only Yahweh, Lord of creation, but also Abba, Father. Both things are for you. Both things. This great, omnipotent, all-powerful God says, you are my child. This is the might and mercy of God. So do not harden your hearts. Stop putting God in the dock. Turn in faith and repentance unto Christ and come to know the Lord. See how overwhelmingly magnificent and kind and good our God is. Behold him. Submit to him. Tremble. And rejoice at his beautiful perfections. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, your word reflects not only who you are, but in it is a mirror that reflects the nature of our hearts. Oh Lord, how we ought to respond to you with soft, supple hearts. We might have questions, all sorts of questions about life, about justice, how things can be fair. But may we approach you with all humility, eager to submit to whatever you say, because you are Lord. And we are ready to ask our questions because you are our Father who delights to hear from your children. Make us responsive people, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.